The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome back, everyone. <clears throat> How, the volume okay? Hi, so good. Um, just a couple of things. Um, Steve pointed out something to me that I thought was uh, important to mention, and that is uh, two things. One is that uh, one of Ajahn Tanisro's teachers, who was a Thai monk, said something that I think sums it up accurately. According to Steve, I haven't heard this myself, he said, the experience of the fourth jhana, the first four jhanas are different for everyone, but once you get into the formless attainments, that's the same for everyone. And I think that is true. So that seems reasonable to me too. I thought I'd just put that out there. Because, you know, if you're experiencing boundless space or consciousness, that's a... That thing. So I think that's a problem true. But it's also, I think it also highlights the importance of the... Um, that the early jhanas are different, which we've been talking about, and it's just to know that it's not just one way. So, um, and the second piece I actually list in your, um, let me find it here. I don't think I put it in your notes, but, but there is... Um, one place in the suttas they, they talk about another jhana that we didn't talk about. So it's not really, I don't know if it just got stuck in there because it doesn't get emphasized, but it, it says, you remember in the first jhana there's vitak and vichar, this mental activity, whatever, and then it drops away in the second. One place it says there's another jhana in between, which, uh, so there's actually five jhanas there, in which, Vitaka's gone, but you still have Vichara in between. But it's just mentioned one thing. Nobody really talks about it. I'm just FYI. I'm just telling you that. Okay. All right. So now with all this background, I want us to, now let's explore, bring it into the practicality of... Um, from a practice point of view. And um, looking on page two of your notes, in the middle it says, Samadhi in important Buddhist lists. So first, let me read a quote to you that um, I don't think I have it in your notes. But um, this is a quote that appears several places in the suttas, and it's a pretty strong statement, which the Buddha says, um, 
all those who escaped from the world, that's in the past, or escape now or will escape in the future, that's basically a euphemism from attain full enlightenment, did so, do so, and will continue to do so by, and then there's three things, they abandon the five hindrances, which are defilements of the mind that weaken wisdom, and with minds well established in the four establishings of mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, by developing the seven factors of enlightenment. So that's just, so basically, at least in this system, in this model, it's saying that everybody who's ever achieved whatever this nirvana is, either did so or will anyone will ever do, again, you have to let go of the hindrances. They don't have to be completely, the potential for hindrances don't have to be eradicated, but you have to let go of them enough to be able to practice. And then you develop, number two, the four foundations of mindfulness. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. And then by um, bringing to fruition the seven factors of enlightenment, another list. So that's really a, a big deal. We should pay attention to that if we're practicing in this system. And so... Um, I want to look at a couple of these, this one list called the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, which is a very, very important list that occurs many, many times. And um, it's a list of seven qualities. And um, just a moment. And I think I have them here for you. Yeah, the bottom of page two. And... So these are the English translations of... So let's just re look at what, the, what those are. In the or, traditional order is mindfulness is number one, sati. Number two, I didn't put the Pali in there, but anyway, investigation or discrimination of dhammas or discernment. Dhamma is the Pali, dharma is the Sanskrit. So dharma. This word dhammas, so the dharma, it has an, a range of meanings. It often means just kind of the truth of things with a capital T, the way things are. That could be a meaning. The whole teachings is Dharma. There's another meaning of Dharma which really just means things, phenomena, but not in an ordinary sense from a Dharma sense. So you could look at, anyways, it, but think of it as just meaning things, Dharmas. Uh, but more in it from an essential quality. So it's invest so mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, investigation of experience, if you will, of your own mind and body, inner and outer experience. Then the number three is energy. Number four, rapture, that's, um, that's the piti. Number five, tranquility. It's actually a different word than samatha. It's pasati is the word, but it means tranquility. Number six, concentration, there's the samadhi. And number seven, equanimity. You'll notice a lot of familiar terms in here that we've already looked at. Yeah? And we'll explore those in just a minute. But um, and I have a few more quotes in here that might be of interest. What is the path and the way leading to the, that leads to the cessation of craving is the seven factors of enlightenment. There's a lot of, a few quotes here. There's, I'll name two main ways that the seven factors of enlightenment can be approached. One is, is that it's a sequential list that's worked, there's kind of an order to it when you think about it. Um, 
you start with mindfulness. You use that mindfulness to connect with, you could say to bring discernment to things. And then you bring some energy, right? And then through, through doing that practice of energy, we get the, the PT. And then as things settle down, we were talking about that earlier this morning, to the tranquility, then with the deeper samadhi concentration finally leading to equanimity. It's kind of a, almost like a progression through those four jhanas. You could look at it that way. It's not the only way it's looked at, but you could, right? And in fact, if you turn to, to the next page in your notes, six of those seven qualities are either directly in the definition of jhana, or um, the Buddha talks about them just in his practice leading up to jhana. And I've given you some quotes here. You can look at them more in detail where you can see I've put them in bold. So we won't go through all that just to save time. So people understand the seven factors of enlightenment in a lot of different ways. It's like everything we've been saying all morning. It's not just one way. You don't have to correlate this list to jhana. It's fine. But I do. And actually, when you hold it in context, again, we're in the world of the suttas. I'm setting the Vasudhimaga aside just for the moment. The world of the suttas, especially that, um, um, think of it from a few perspectives. One, in, in the course of the, uh, if we want to let other suttas inform our understanding, uh, right, what's right samadhi, it's the four jhanas. Um, Think, look at the progression here of what's here. The piti, settling down more into the tranquility, the samadhi. It doesn't say right samadhi, it just says samadhi. So you could interpret it any way you want. But um, in the light of, you know, all these other quotes that, that we talked about earlier, that it was this right samadhi jhana that really was leading to this enlightenment, and then here again, these quotes about the seven factors of enlightenment is what leads to enlightenment. I see these as um, kind of synonymous to me with the development of jhana, that, that you can overlap them if you want. But then again, you don't have to. And I think one useful way to think about them that I would just offer is, you know, different teachers are going to come at it from different perspectives. I would say that just like, remember we were talking about that right samadhi is defined as the four jhanas, but I think we're, we, we can get into trouble if we think, oh, I don't have right samadhi unless I have jhana, and then you, you, we're kind of judging our practice, like, oh, I'm, I'm less than in some way. And remember I, I said I thought a more useful way to hold it is however much samadhi you have, you think of it as right samadhi, culminating in jhana. It's not what the suttas say, but I'm just offering that. As long as you've got it informed by right view, right understanding, by the other elements of the Eightfold Path, it's all right, Samadhi. You just got what you got, but we're aiming in a wholesome direction. That's, I see that in the same way as the seven factors of enlightenment. Again, this is just my own take on it. Right? That we're, we're cultivating these, and so all of these qualities can be present kind of to maybe a, a stronger, deeper more mature degree or lesser so. And we just want to work with them and cultivate them because they're all wholesome qualities to support us for liberating, you know, our hearts and minds. So that's the way to hold these. 
And so I think from that point of view, you, you, you map it onto whatever style of practice you're doing. If you're doing a pure insight without jhana, he still maps on as qualities to develop it. To develop, if you're doing a samadhi practice, it maps on uh, uh, to the, even all the way up to jhana. So you can hold it in any of these ways. And people do teach them and understand it in all these different ways. But just to know, I mean, we can spend more time on it if you want. I wanted to really spend time on the next list, but I wanted to just, if you, if you don't know the seven factors of enlightenment, it's, it's a very important list, one of the most important. Any comments or questions about, um, about any of that? Yes. A point of definition, um, the difference between equanimity and tranquility. Um, I see equanimity as, as being um, maintaining your balance in the face of um, difficulties, whereas uh, <clears throat> tranquility is maybe somewhat similar, but without reference to having difficulties to contend with. You're just placid. Yeah, but, but what do you? What I would say? take what you said. I think that's great how you said it. And I would just shift a little bit. I would say equanimity, not just in the face of difficulties, but in the face of all experiences, including experiences that can be very pleasant. Because one of the things that can happen is, you know, when things are. We don't even have to talk about meditation or jhana. Just in normal life, when things are going our way and we're happy and good, you know, it's easy to just just become complacent and we're just kind of in it and we're not and we get kind of lost in it and we sort of unconsciously think oh things are just going to continue on and maybe equanimity is not that but you know we still can we're kind of can be lost in it in a little bit um and when things are not going our way whether it's very hard difficult or even a little bit we're also kind of lost in it but in a different way we can get very reactive with it and so an equanimity to, in, in, to me i think it's similar to what you have it's it's, it's a place of balance where we're not I like the word disentangled. I use that word a lot. Where, where we, we're not cut off from things. Equanimity doesn't mean we're aloof. We're, we're, we're connected with life, but we're disentangled. There's like a liberation there, right? So equanimity allows us to have a place of presence and sort of a non-reactive being, if you will. Tranquility is a very specific state where the storm clouds of the mind just aren't happening. So that's true. But, okay. but I will add this, there is another kind of tranquility that I've experienced, maybe some of you have, is, I remember this happened to me, was I was on a long retreat, and you know, my mind had gotten very still. I was doing walking meditation. I remember when this happened so clearly, because it, uh, and some real difficult stuff was happening in my mind. I don't know if I was depressed or some difficult, you know, these things can happen, it was just coming through the mind. And so that was there, but underneath it was also a place of stillness, kind of a tranquility. So, there was, so it was sort of like that place we were talking about earlier where you can have a stillness of mind, but still other things can happen. And it was kind of see these things rolling through. And that's a different kind of tranquility. I felt, once I realized that that was happening, I started to react, and then I realized I had this, this base of support. Then the difficulties can still come, but there was a deeper place of presence that could just allow it, feel it, not, not disconnecting. And it was kind of a tranquility too, even though there were some storm clouds. So you know, there's a lot of different kind of flavors to this. That answers. Thank you. Yes, please. I remember um, a passage in Ajahn Chah's teaching. It stuck in my mind because he said that 
um, some people don't have the propensity for samadhi, and they just can't do it well, and they sit down and meditate, and they just think a lot, which is what I'm like. And he said, that's fine. <laughs> they, they do fine. But then if you, you don't get the impression also that he doesn't think samadhi is important. So I'm just wondering if it's just sort of more that you do it as well as you can or that you intend to do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like what I said uh, when we first started today. I mean, the whole days on understanding John and Samadhi and the range of teachings in the text, the range of ways it's talked, how it fits in with insight. Oh, it's a big topic. Serious as you can get, right? Right, but uh, you know, if you read, there are. Yep. I think what you're saying is is true. But if you read some of some of the transcripts of his talks, there's places in there where he makes quite a, a big emphasis on Samadhi too. Yes, so you I'm can find that too. Yeah. You know, I think. You know, it's kind of like what we were saying earlier that really, you know, what the, the, for, in this system of in Theravada Buddhism, of course, there's a number of systems here. It's not just one way. But the, the liberation is called liberation through non-clinging. So this whole thing of what frees our hearts and minds, keeps our hearts open, liberates us from clinging, right? So everything is what supports that. And I think clearly this undistractedness of mind that we're talking about here is, a, is tremendously valuable and important. It's a big deal. I think it's a big deal. Yet at the same time, when I also say let's not make too big of a deal about it, it's because we don't want to lose sight of it. It's not about the, the state of... The liberation is something beyond that state, right? And it reminds me of a story. Um, if, if you look in the... So in Theravada, there's a model of how enlightenment happens. I have no idea if this is how the universe works, but it's the model. Maybe it is. It's called the four stages of enlightenment. And for each stage... Um, I, I don't want to get into all that stages right now, but you attain those stages not by any experience or meditative state... It's the dropping away of certain of what's called fetters. What's a fetter? Something that binds us or holds us or we're caught, right? Held. So when those drop away, it's what stops us from this liberation this, that, 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 that the Dharma is pointing towards. So there are just these qualities that drop away. So all of these practices within this system should be understood in that model as in service of dropping away things that bind us, that keep us stuck in suffering, if you want to use the Four, four uh, Noble Truths model. So does everyone have to have some samadhi to have, have things that drop us away? I've known people, this isn't sort of a traditional way of thinking, but you know, just through whatever, psychotherapy, and because they held it in a Dharma perspective, they saw some pattern that was keeping a lot of suffering and kept an identity with self that was a negative identity. And then it just kind of disentangled and let loose and there was a whole other level of freedom. Now, to me, if you hold it within a Dharma context, that, it had nothing to do with samadhi. So what frees the, the heart and the mind, I, I, I'm not qualified to say it has to be just one way or another. I, I'm open to anything if it's kept within a Dharma context. Right? So it's the same thing about these states of samadhi. And just one more story. I heard Joseph Goldstein. I don't remember if he told me this one-on-one -on -one or he might have given it in a talk. I can't remember. Maybe some of you have heard this. He said when he was young and he was meditating intensively for however many years in Bodh Gaya, he said Munindra took him around and was pointing to some of these simple women who were doing some laundry, I guess, by the, by the, by the stream there, what are washing their clothes. And they were sincere lay followers of Manindra, stu Dharma students, and uh, uh, um, Joseph said Manindra would point to one, and this woman said, uh, 
These are stages of enlightenment. Don't worry what they mean. Stream enterer, once returner, non-returner. And then he said, uh, Munindra said to him, they have no idea. They're just living. But their minds are just in this place of, and I don't remember what he said, but in this open-hearted place of like presence or open-heartedness of non-clinging and how they lived and went through in a harmonious way with life. So, you know, that's an interesting place because he didn't say, oh yeah, you know, she was a nun with me for 15 years and after living in the cave and attaining all the stages, he didn't say that. They were whatever, they didn't get into the detail. So I think that really points to something in this model. It's not about any state, it's about where's the place of freedom in our hearts and minds. So I'll just share with you one other thing, and we'll go back, maybe the Satipatthana Sutta. My practice is, I still meditate, I have a daily practice, I've been meditating you know, a lot of years, and I still think it's important. But for me, my, I used to view the cutting edge of my practice as what happened more in formal meditation. And I'm not saying this is right or wrong, I'm just sharing my own with you. For me now, the cutting edge of my practice is really in the daily life. As a fruit of, of cultivating the non-undistractedness, it's, anybody can do it, I'm not any gifted meditator, but I've just been doing it you know, a lot of years. Isn't it true you can really see moment, we're, la- we're lost less, and when the mind falls into clinging, even on subtler levels, you really can, are aware of it more? And the opportunities to see those patterns are so much greater now in daily life. You get to run into all the people you know, who pester us and all the things we don't like. and every, you know, there's, it, it, it just goes on and on. But if you hold it in a Dharma perspective, those are all opportunities. You see it, and you've also got the ability to let go, let go, let go. And when your heart closes off to a situation or a person, open the heart. So to me, my whole practice now is, is just letting go, open the heart, letting go, open the heart in daily life. I don't know what would happen if I stopped meditating. <laughs> so that's just where my cutting edge is because that's the, the place of um, where you really, in the service of the liberation. I say that because, notice I didn't mention for myself, even though I've thought samadhi and jhana has been a big deal and it's really my path has been a, more of a path of what I call samadhi. Um, um, I'm not really emphasizing that in my own life really so much anymore and I'm not, I haven't reached the end of the path or anything, but... Um, So we have to find for ourselves where the place of samadhi is going to be. So we're going to emphasize it today, but remember Vasudhimaga's got a pure path of pure bare insight or dry insight. There's no John in there. Kind of more the Mahasi, right? Kind of, or whatever. Um, Let me ask a question here. So this is kind of a long Pali name. Some of you know it, and it's kind of a tongue twister called the Satipatthana. Satipatthana, so the Sati's mindfulness. It just means the foundations of mindfulness. There's four of them, so it's generally translated four foundations of mindfulness. I know some of you know this very well. If you're not, if you don't, if you're not too embarrassed to share, are there any people here who aren't familiar with it, haven't heard it, just wondering what the heck is that? Okay, so, yeah. Okay, and I see a, a, about maybe three different people kind of nodded. Okay, so what I want to do is just very quickly give an overview of it. This will be short. And then I want to really focus, on, because our theme is samadhi, what's the place of samadhi in here? And let's look at a range of ways it, modern teachers will step away from the texts, how they teach this, right? And just a range of ways. 
Um, because the Satipatthana, if you go to the, in our tradition here, which has come out of like say Spirit Rock and IMS on the East Coast and kind of affiliated centers out of that whole scene, it's changing because it gets a lot of other influences, but I would say very, very heavy uh, for foundation of mindfulness is kind of have, has been one of the main, or you could say maybe a main structure model from which they teach if you go on an insight meditation retreat. This is very, very important practice sutta. Basically, and I've, I've given a little, did I put an overview in here for you? I didn't, did I? Well, let me just mention it, and if you, if, don't, if you don't know this, you don't have to memorize it, and you can easily just, there's a ton of books, if you just do a web search, Four Foundations of Mindfulness, Foundations of Mindfulness, Joseph Goldstein's got a book out now called Mindfulness, and I think, doesn't he use that uh, structure of Satipatthana? What's that? I think so. That's a popular book called, it's a big thick one, Mindfulness, and it's sort of his take on it. Uh, if you want to get a little more technical, there's a book by a guy named, ask me offline, I can, I can remind you of the name, a guy named Analayo, a well-known practice monk who's a scholar and a deep practitioner. He's given more of a detailed book on it, which is good. He's coming from, from a particular perspective, but it's a great book. So you can get plenty of stuff on it. But basically what it does is it, it divides meditation practice into four groups of, of and I'll just name them. The first one's mindfulness of the body. And they divide that one up into, it, this goes on and on. <laughs> they divide that up into six groups. Maybe I'll come back and mention that. I don't want to spend too much time really delving into the sutta. That's really kind of a lifetime of practice and study. The body. The second one is an interesting one. I'll give you the poly later, but it's translated as feeling tone. But it doesn't mean feelings like moods or emotions. It actually means every experience has a pleasant or unpleasant quality. Or sometimes it has a kind of in-between quality. So you can actually pay attention to the pleasant quality, the unpleasant or the in-between quality. They call it Vedana in Pali. So the body, this feeling tone. The third is states of the mind. And it's not talking about thoughts in there. It's talking about mind states like are, um, is greed, hatred, or delusion present in your mind or not? Is your mind concentrated or not? That's what it's talking about. There's a, there's a li- specific list there. Right? So I just really wanted to know, you know, um, sort of the, the, the flavor of what's coloring your mind, not necessarily the individual contents of thoughts. Right. It's interesting to know. That could be a whole practice just to know your mind. Is my mind kind of, uh, is my mind contracted or not? That's a, there's one. So how does it feel to be a not contractor? Sometimes it feels like our mind's contracted. I won't go through the whole list, but there's, I don't know how many, and there may be 10 different, eight different qualities. Pay attention to the coloring, the tone, the feeling tone, of not feeling tone, but of your mind states. And then the fourth one is, is kind of complex. It's mindfulness of dhammas. Remember I said this word dharma or dhamma can mean, among other meanings, one of them was things. But, but in a Dharma perspective. So these are dhammas, things to pay attention to. 
And it's kind of complicated. When you really understand it, it's not complicated, but it takes five different, let me just say it and then just sort of let it go. It's five different lists of things, and it tells you not only to be mindful of them, but how to work with things. So, for example, um, when we're seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or having body sensations, you can be mindful of that. But we can also be mindful of what gets us hooked. You know, if you see something, what's causing the mind to go into clinging? You want to notice that and what helps the mind let go of clinging. So it's giving you some more tips. Not just to be aware of seeing something mindful. Things like that. Seven factors of enlightenment is in there. You're not only aware of them, but you have skill in developing them. Four noble truths are in there. You really come to understand as it actually is. You know, this is suffering. This is its cause. This is its ending. So there's a whole bunch of lists in there to be mindful of. And, but it adds more. It actually says, and here, how do you work with it? Hindrances are in there. So if a hindrance of, you know, sensual desire and your grasping is there, you know that. But you also know how to work with it. It tells you like how to let it go, how to keep it from arising. There's a lot of detail in there. So again, there's mindfulness of the body. Number two, feeling tone. Number three, these states of mind. And number four is just all these lists, um, five lists, and, and, and how to work with them. So it's a lot. Before we move on, I would just suggest a one possible way to approach if this is a model that you're interested in. I think it's an important model to, no matter how you practice, to gain some familiarity with it. So you can have it in your toolkit if and when you want to use it. Some people really do a lot of formal study in that sutta. That's great. Other people, they're not drawn to do that, but just from being around and hearing it, it sticks. But the important thing is not to get kind of overwhelmed with a lot of complexity. The more you become familiar with it, it actually is, is very clear, and it's all there. And it's, not, it's like anything when you come to know it. You just know it. And so give it time and you just pick up the pieces here and there that you're interested in. And then it's like tools in your toolkit or it's like, um, like, like I don't play golf so I might get this wrong for any of you golfers but my understanding is you can't put every club in your bag. Isn't there a limit how many clubs by regulation play? I don't know what it is, 11 clubs. Some of you might, maybe there's no golfers here to help me but some, no, let's just pick a number. Ten, that's not the right number, you don't have ten. There's more than ten clubs. Isn't there like a, for just the irons, isn't there a one, two, three, four, all the way up to like, a, there's, there's four different woods, there's a chipping wedge, there's a bunch of clubs. You have to choose which ones, first of all, you, so you get to know your game and which ones work for you. And those are in your bag, so that's, a, that's part of the skill in meditation. We have to know ourselves, all these practices, which ones are supporting me, right? That's why we want to study and learn all this stuff and then to see so we're more educated. Same thing like the golf. But it's more than that. Then when you're actually on the course, you may or may not have a caddy helping you figure this out. But depending on where it is, you're looking at the situation and you pull one of your tools out. You don't try to do them all at the same time. You don't use every club every time. With the Satipatthana Sutta, you're not intended to have to do all of this stuff. Nobody uses it all. 
But it's nice to have the tools in your toolkit for when the situation arises. So if I'm really having a visual, I'm seeing a person say that bothers me. I'm not looking at you. I'm looking through there. Sorry, I thought it looked like I'm looking out there to no one. (laughs) And that's the person that they said whatever to me last week. And when I see that person, ill will arises in my mind. But as a good Dharma practitioner, I know I don't want to unconsciously go along with that. I want to liberate my heart and mind, learn to let go. So how can I work skillfully? There might be a lot of things. First of all, you have enough mindfulness to see what's happening. Then I, um, I'm able to, maybe I need some loving kindness or compassion practices. We haven't talked about those today. Important. But also I can, ah, bring in the Satipatthana, fourth foundation. S- mindful that I'm seeing. Seeing, seeing. Mindful of the fetter that's arising. It's got me caught. Ah, I need to have skill in how to let go, liberate myself from that fetter. Well, that could be a lot of different things then. Maybe just that awareness is enough. Or maybe I say, no, I just need to get away and not see them a little bit so I can calm down. So you step away. You go outside and you look at a beautiful tree to the side and you get your outside and you get your heart, nature, and you get yourself in a good space. And now that I'm in a space of love and spaciousness, now what's it like if I come back and say, or whatever, I don't know, you use these tools. So that's the way to hold the Satipatthana Sutta. I, 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 I'm just, we just don't have time to get into the text that much. But, you know, the basic idea. The, I should say that the mindfulness of, of the body one is divided into six parts, and I'll just name a few of the parts. Mindfulness of breathing is one of them. That's a body experience. Being, the second one is four postures. Sitting, standing, walking or lying down. You can actually be mindful of your body there. Third one is all activities. Moving around, brushing your teeth, going to the bathroom, bathing, eating. So you can be mindful in all activities. That's one of the practices. There's some others in there that I won't mention right now, but that are important. If you go on a typical retreat, I haven't... I, I've just done only self-retreats for a number of years, but um, so I'm not sure exactly how it's being taught. Uh, but, um, you know, um, a, stand, a typical way you'll be taught is you go, say, to Spirit Rock. You're on a regular Vipassana Insight Meditation Retreat. And they might start off for first day or two and just have you connect with your breathing depending on the teacher, they may just say breathing or they may say, you know, breathing's not a good practice for everyone, which is true. And here's some other practices you can do. When I say breath, you substitute in body scan or mantra or mindfulness of sound or there's lots of other practices, whatever. And you have a foundational practice and you just do that for a couple of days to help you settle. And then they might open up the instructions and say, okay, now start to be more aware of your whole body more, what's going on other body sensations when they arise in your meditation? Right? You'll hear the common. Four postures when you're moving around. When you're moving around in daily activities, start to be aware of that. Then they'll bring in awareness of the Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Then they might add in being more aware over time. You're getting deeper, more concentrated. You're more able to feel the states in your mind. Know what's happening in your mind, right? And that's typical progression. 
The fourth foundation tends, in my experience, more to be offered, not in the meditation instructions, but that'll come in during the talks. They'll talk about working with some of the other lists tend to come in. And then depending on the teacher, they may um, have it be a real progression, start with the breath and, and work through four, four postures, other body sensations, all activities, the Vedana, mind states, that's one way. Some teachers may emphasize staying with your breath, giving it a lot of emphasis even later on when other things are happening, still give a lot to the emphasis to the breath. Other teachers may let go of any particular emphasis to the breath at all and just being mindful and aware with whatever's happening. There's a range of ways people teach. Some people may not be giving any emphasis to the concentration side at all. You won't even hear them talk about samadhi for some teachers. It's just bringing mindfulness, mindfulness to what's happening. The idea being that just doing that, you get all the samadhi you need. That's one way. Another way is uh, if you really keep staying with the breath and if something else is really strong, you know, that knee pain is really strong, you can let go of the breath and go to that, but stay a pretty good emphasis with the breath, the feeling being that'll help the, the concentration deepen more. Different style. Some people work through a progression, others, some, some teachers will have, take one of these particular foundations and focus on it. So some teachers might say only mindfulness of the body, that's the whole emphasis. Others may be the whole third foundation, states of your mind. That's more like an Utajaniya kind of style, right? States of your mind. A lot of different ways people teach this. And a lot of different ways they see it in relationship to samadhi. We're going to look in a minute at what the text says. Let's, let's do that now. Let's look at what the, from the text place, and then I want to come back and offer, from a practice point of view, a few alternatives, ways in which you might think about how you could bring samadhi into your practice. Yeah. Then we can open it up for a little discussion, yeah? Anything so far? Remember, I, remember this morning I was inviting everyone, anytime, raise your hand, interrupt. Okay, yes. Uh, talking about the jhana states themselves, are these states that uh, humans can enter spontaneously without intending to do so? And yes. I mean the like third and fourth levels. Yes, but not many people. But not many people. Absolutely. And, and, and my Some question, people might disagree, but I'm saying absolutely. Uh, I'm wondering if it would come from like creative states of mind or is there a particular... I, I, who knows? I can't... I don't know the answer to that, but... I mean, it could. There, I have known more than one, because I wrote this book on samadhi, I tend to attract these people from, you know, will contact me. So I, I don't know, I may be getting a skewed sample. But I've had not too many, but uh, at least a couple I can think of over the years of people who, something about how, you know, neural pathways are firing in their brain, I guess, I don't know, are like getting into these states and they don't know what's going on and everything. I mean, they are in real jhana states but they didn't cultivate it, just something is going on in their brain. That actually um, can be um, challenging, by the way. Uh, it can be challenging. Because what happens is sometimes people are, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, people, it's very common, you know, be, we all have our own natural, not proclivity, but ability to concentrate. 
Some of us are naturally more concentrators than others. I consider myself a kind of average ability, but I've been doing it for 45 years, so I, you know, I've got good, pretty good samadhi, but I'm not a gifted concentrator. And sometimes people, oh, that person, they never sat before me, they're going into John, and I've been struggling for five years. And that has its advantages to have a mind that can concentrate, and then you work with, go with the strengths, and I won't get into that much, but, but, but it can have a downside. For people for whom the concentration develops more on a more of a gradual path, for many people, by the time you get into the deeper samadhi, you've had to sit with yourself and work through your shame and your fear and your grief and your self-esteem and, and all that stuff, and the body's had to kind of disentangle. And, and uh, by the time you get there, you've worked through so much that you're, you really are able to handle it and be there in a, in a, with the balance comes in. And, and that's a real balance way. And people who go in very easily and quick, this is just a gross generalization. I'm not saying everyone, but they may not have all these other things have been developed. And then we've got to like manage that while the wisdom side, the insight, the mindfulness side, the equanimity, the right view, the right, everything else has to catch up. So everything has its strengths and it also has its learning edges and challenges. A follow-up to that, um, and maybe you're going to talk about this, but then w do you suggest that someone who wants to work directly toward or with the jhanas would do it in retreat with a teacher, or would you suggest it's okay for someone experienced to work on their own? Right. I think probably for most people it happens more in a retreat context. That's absolutely not true. I, I work with people myself, and... Um, um, actually, in my own daily practice, these days I'm not going into jhana, but I'm kind of on the doorstep there. Remember, I don't use the term access concentration. It's a Vodhisuddhi Maga term, very specific. You have to have a name. But I'm kind of in that realm. But, so if I, if I would not be lazy and up the, the effort a little, I could do it in daily life. Uh, there are people who do it in daily life practice for sure. They're the more kind of more natural concentrators. I think the... i got to be careful. I, probably for... Most people, it really happens more in retreats. I, it's, I think that's true. Also, one of the things over time, as, as you probably know, you're a long-term meditator, you know, people sometimes get to it on retreat, but then, um, you know, it becomes more, your mind, you can just go there. You've developed the skill and it can carry into daily life if you keep up a practice uh, more. It's just so individual. And also, you have to pick which teacher and style. So if you were to go to someone like Shyla Catherine or... Um, Steven Schneider and, uh, Schneider and Tina Rasmussen, they're, they're practicing, or, or Nikki, you know, they're, practicing, they're teaching more in the uh, um, Powak style. And then you go to Tanjaf or me, we're kind of in more, well, I'm calling it Sutta style. They think they would call their Sutta style too, but, you know, I'm making that distinction. Different style, Lee Brasington, there are other teachers out there I'm, I know of, I'm not mentioning. They're all going to teach in a different way. Some of those ways will require more intensive seclusion and, and, uh, than others. So it all is a combination of your interest, your proclivity, natural proclivities, the style, you're, what you're aiming for. It's a big world out there. About the capacity to um, investigate jhana, and, that, and I think that's... A difference in how you were mentioning difference how it's defined in Visuddhimagga versus Sutta, and if you have comments about that, if it's a state, whether it's a state that can be investigated or not, and it, 
what level? Because the, this definition is saying thought falls away after the first jhana. So, yeah, but the investigation doesn't have to be a thinking through things, a verbal discursive thing. We use this term investigation, but sometimes it's an inclining of the mind towards just a... And so remember I mentioned earlier that in jhana... So at first I should say my own experience, and I didn't say this earlier uh, this morning, I'm more on the sutta style. I actually do have some experience in the Vasudhimaga style, but I just haven't really spent a lot. I'm just not that, it's not for my own practice where I'm that interested. So I've touched those states, but I haven't really hung out and gotten to know them in so much depth. So everything I say about it, I would, I would uh, be careful and I would more, uh, from an experiential, we can talk about the text, but from an experiential point of view, I'd point more to those teachers or practitioners. But having said that, certainly in a sutta style, remember I was saying that I was going to put words to it, but there aren't words, even when you get into deeper jhana where the verbal's dropped away and you're really in this one-pointed, the mind can't move. There's still a little bit of the part of the mind, another part or something that can kind of incline. It's very subtle. And you can incline it. That's kind of, you could think of it as an investigation. It's, it, the word is a little too active, meaning. But even in there, you can kind of incline towards... Remember I said, for some people, jhana, once you're in, it just progresses on its own. You don't do anything, and it just goes. And that happens for some. And for other people, they need to kind of incline the mind either towards a letting go of the grosser factors or a, a, a kind of inclining into the, 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 the subtler factors. And that can be... So there is a little... It's hard to describe. It's subtle. There's a little kind of doing there. It's not words, but I put it in words. Just to, It's kind of like, hmm, what's this? Or, oh, or there's kind of a, just an inclining. So there's that level. You, in jhana, you can certainly, again, I'm in the sutta style, you can know the unsatisfactory of nature, nature of it when you're in it. I was, I'm talking to a guy just this last week, and he goes, he's a classic John, a guy, been doing it for years, and now he's bored. He's 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 sitting in the he's going into he can go into fourth job. I mean, this guy he's one of these gifted concentrators, for real. And I've worked with him on retreat, and I've seen. I mean, he's he's the real deal. And he's just he's going, yeah, you know, I'm sitting there in fourth John. He goes, well, what should I do? Should I hang out? Should I? We're talking about how to work, and there are works. Like I think his his learning edge is right there. There's, some, there's, a, there's a little dukkha right there. I mean, he's got some material to work with. We didn't have to have a sort of a general tip on what, how to practice. He's got it for him very alive right there. So it's different for each person. But he's able to kind of a little bit, we were talking about how you can, first of all, be bored. I've had this happen to me too. I was saying earlier, and I've been in like jhana, and your mind's everything. And then it's like there's a little something that just wants to like, go check CNN to see how, how many delegates Donald Trump got in the whatever. And it's just like, you know, and it's like I want to distract myself. And I'm sitting here, and then there's a part that's kind of like, um, what's with that? You know, you're in this state, and it's just like, and it's, it's kind of blissful, and you're totally there. And that's all there. It's like this this other mind that's also it's subtle. So maybe other people don't have that. I mean, my mind's so defiled, you know, all bets are off. But uh. Yeah, well, in, in the technical aspect of Pao Oksida, that would be a break. 
Yeah, yeah, that so, be seen as a break right. in samadhi, that that, that was defilement of again, so right, that right. wasn't actually pure samadhi. Right, but he's, remember, he, he, we were talking about this morning Vasudhimagajana, it's a different deal, and we were yeah. describing kind of what's different there, so in that model, uh, it's a different level. And remember, the way I described it is the level of what I say, this is just me, if you take Sutta and Vasudhimagga, the level, whatever parts of your mind are engaged to come to this ekagata, is the same. But in the Vasudhimaga, other functions also come to quiescence so that you can't experience yes. your body and everything. And in the, in the sutta, the mind comes to one-pointedness, but its um, other parts may not come mm-hmm. to complete quiescence. Yeah. Uh, even though, well, that's... But then, so, yeah, so you're using the language of... Palak would say something different if he was sitting here. Exactly. So you're using, you right now are using the language of sutta style versus the Sudhimaga style to talk about different states. But, in fact, we might experience each one of those states. We might experience a state where we can't investigate it. There's absorption. It, that can happen in sutta style, too, And there's by the absorption way. that arrives and that departs. And it's just... There's this experience, and there's absorption, right. and then it disappears. And then Think of other it this qualities way. of mind come back. Think of it this way. There is a list, here's another list for you, mm-hmm. called the four imponderables. It's in the Anguttara Nikaya, which is the book of ones, twos, threes. It's in the book of fours. And it's four things that the Buddha said, don't try to even think about, go there in your mind, because number one, you can't figure it out, and number two, he didn't use this exact language, but it would just kind of blow your mind, mm-hmm. you, you, and you can't figure it out, and he, and he said, um, I'll just tell you the list, one of them is the mind of a Buddha, Let's see if I can remember, one is the kind of the complexities of, of the web of karma, in the context of, you know, so many countless lifetimes, one of them is sort of the origin of how existence even, how did this all get started? What's the beginning of the origin of anything? You know, forget that. And the fourth, this in the order, um, the range of experiences possible in jhana. So it's not just one way. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's useful to talk about it to try and understand it. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, as you've already talked about, different people are teaching different things and are defining it very precisely. This is what it is and this is what it isn't. And in fact, as you're saying, actually it could be any and all of these experiences. Right. That's what I say. Other people won't. Other people have a different system, right? They'll say, no, it's like this, this, and this. And then that's fine. That's their system. And if you want to practice in that system, then that's, that's a different way. Yes, Steve. That's interesting with getting bored in the jhanas. Um, I have similar stories I know from other people, not bored, but other stuff I can talk to you about in private later. Um, but I'm wondering is if that happens, because well, they never admit to it, but never heard of monastics talking about that. I wonder if it's because the other foundations, you know, the virtue, the right view, that all those things, I can't imagine a monastic wanting to see CNN in the middle of jhana. I mean, that, that part, they don't watch TV or... I don't know what their version of CNN is, the monastic version. No, but, but I'm really serious. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a different foundation yeah. 
You know, right, I mean, right. it's also like I said. It was, I may have said this this morning. The Buddha said, I mean, he goes this list. You know, in order to have concentration, you you have to have this, this, and finally starts off with admirable friends. For an admirable friends, then it's listening to the Dhamma, understanding the Dhamma. You know, virtue, and a lot of times he says you can't have jhana without virtue. So I'm wondering if, if the foundations are in place, and that's why it's shaking. Well, maybe so, but the other thing, I, I just add a different, I don't know the answer to that. That's an interesting perspective. I would just say another possibility also is, is that I think many monastics will talk about different things that arise in their mind as, when they use it as part of their teaching. And will be, you know, there's certain things they're not going to talk about to lay people, but we say, you know, here's things that arise in my mind and how I work with it, and, you know, and it will be honest about it. And so, in the example, I didn't, fin- just because the feeling comes up to one whatever, you know, go on to CNN, doesn't necessarily mean I have to get up and do it. And that's actually an interesting place because I think one of the, one of the powers of jhana is, and I talk about this in my book, is like, you know, you, 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 and the Buddha talked about this, when we touch the pleasure of jhana, ordinary sense pleasures just, it's just, it's not that you come out of John and, and, and you know, we're, we're immune from sense pleasures. I'm not going to go that far, but it really shifts because you just see that they really pale in comparison. So that you start to say, okay, ordinary sense pleasure is not going to do it for me. Then, uh, John, a meditative states. Then you're sitting in the fourth John and there's a, dis- a, 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 a unsatisfactory quality there. And it's like, John is not going to do it for me either. And that is an interesting place from the insight perspective right there it's there you don't have to have a theoretical thing of well how do I practice insight in jhana right there it's giving you what you need and that's the place to work and then it's it's forcing the mind to go into another dropping down a whole other place of, of turning towards a liberation a, another place of letting go right and it doesn't mean that the dukkha is pushed away and then it's now going to become pleasant if, if we think of dukkha as a um, characteristic of all experience, the liberation isn't that, we, that then there is no dukkha as long as we're in a human mind and a human body. The liberation is the liberation in the face of how things are. And so it's a different place of letting go. So I think that that's uh, a rich area just like if you forget about samadhi and jhana, if you just sit down to meditate, and you're not, maybe you're however much concentrated, but not that deep, but your um, you know, difficulties in the mind or difficulties in the body, and we're learning how to be present and let go of our suffering around them. It's the same thing when you're in subtler states too. And so we don't actually have to have a theoretical, we can have a theoretical discussion about insight in jhana, but, but my, where I come from, again, this isn't the suttas, it's um, just looking to what's actually happening in the present moment. That's reality. It's not a concept. That's what's, and then we see, and then you've got all your tools in your toolkit, and then it's like, well, what's needed in, in, the, in a dharma context? What's needed in service of the non-clinging, non-identity, or letting go, or so we just have to look to what's happening in our experience. And having the undistracted mind of, of, of samadhi is a, sur, is a tool so we can see more clearly and subtly when, when things are happening. That's all. That's how I hold it. Yeah. If you look in the Satipatthana Sutta, right, 
remember I pointed out that um, I'm going back and forth here, I notice. I'm going back and forth between, on the one hand, like, Samadhi's a huge big deal. The Buddha didn't teach insight. He said, do John. I'm kind of like on that side. But just as much, I'm back on the side. It's like, well, let's not make too big of a deal about jhana. It's not about, you know, we want to kind of have both perspectives. Here's a quote at the bottom of page three of your notes. It's quoting from the Samyutta Nikaya where they said, if the mind doesn't become concentrated, then the meditator does not gain the pleasant dwelling in the uh, present life, nor does one gain mindfulness and clear comprehension. So from a sutta perspective, I think, and given what we've talked about this morning, we know that samadhi is a big deal. And remember we also said earlier the quote, which appears at least four or five times in the suttas, anyone who's ever escaped the world in the past does so in the present or will do so, did so, does so, or will do so by abandoning the hindrances, cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness, And through that, bringing the seven factors of enlightenment to fruition. If the seven factors of enlightenment are, in their culmination, if you take them all the way, are equivalent to jhana, if, then we could see the four foundations of mindfulness as the practice leading to jhana, through which one gains insight. That's another perspective that you don't hear a lot. Let's explore that a little bit. Could that really be true? I'm giving my own slant now on things. This is kind of, I'm an outlier here. You should know that. Is he the same? Wow, I feel honored. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even go as so far as to say turning towards insight because I don't separate out the path of concentration and insight. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's that would be. Right. Right. That's one. Yeah. Right. And then he wants you to turn consciously towards insight. Right. And so that's. Yes. Right. Right. I more come from, and I'm just offering this a different perspective, so you just hear a few different perspectives, is that I'm more in moment by moment in our experience what's actually arising. And during the times when the mind is clear and calm and there's not a lot, you're just on the concentration side and just stay with whatever and just keep deepening the samadhi. And then on its own, you know, isn't it true you'll have so many hindrances come up, you can't concentrate, body hurts, mind... You're on the insight side. You have plenty to work with. And you just keep moving back and forth. It's all one kind of thing. D- different, different approaches. Richard, did I hear you correctly? What I thought you said, because I know Tan Jeff has said, he said in his book on, on mindfulness, that in the Satipatthana Sutta, the practices there are themes of your meditation that will get you into jhana. Right, but this... Right, so I see it the same... I practice in the same way, but that is only one interpretation because probably, I'm guessing, most insight teachers are not linking it with jhana and are saying it's a separate... So there's just a big different... We said it's a big world out there, just different approaches. So you can practice these four foundations of mindfulness, as we said, just... You can do them systematically. You can practice them... And forgetting about samadhi, just as being mindful of your... In the service of insight. You can practice them in a descriptive or a prescriptive 
prescriptive is prescribing what to do. Put your attention here, put your attention there. The way I practice is more descriptive. Just by practicing mindfulness of breathing alone, it just describes everything else that opens up for you uh, through that one practice. It's another approach. It's a big world, right? So um, here, look at the top of page four. What is concentration? This is a direct quote. What is concentration? What is the basis of concentration? Unification of mind is concentration. It doesn't say jhana, but that's a deep state if we say unification of mind. The four foundations of mindfulness are the basis of that unification of mind. So it's giving a particular slant of emphasizing the samadhi. Another quote. In one of right, it just works systematically through the Eightfold Path. In one of right view, right intention comes into being. In one of right intention, right speech comes into being, and it goes on and on. In one of right mindfulness, right concentration comes into being. And uh, right mindfulness is defined as the four foundations of mindfulness. So, again, in the system of the suttas, it really is saying that the four foundations of mindfulness is a path towards jhana. If you take all the suttas together, it is. It's not, again, not right or wrong, but that's just... But it's interesting because in the Satipatthana Sutta itself, samadhi is actually only mentioned in three places. In the third foundation, which is being mindful of states of mind, chittas, one understands a concentrated mind is concentrated, an unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated. It does not say to develop any particular degree of concentration. It just says no if your mind's concentrated or not. That's one place it's mentioned. Second place is in the fourth foundation. Fourth foundation under there's a section on the seven factors of enlightenment. If the concentration enlightenment factor is present in him, he knows there is the concentration enlightenment factor present. That's all it says. And the third place it's discussed is in the fourth foundation under the Four Noble Truths. Turns out this sutta appears twice. In the middle-length discourse, it's called the Satipatthana Sutta. And then in the long discourses, it appears one other time called the Maha, the great Maha Satipatthana Sutta. It's identical word for word, except the Four Noble Truth part in the Maha, Maha version. It expands it out. It doesn't just say, you know, this is suffering. It's origin, it's cessation in the path. It actually talks about them. And in that, on the Eightfold Path, and it says, and you know as it is, that right concentration is the four jhanas. It doesn't say you have to develop the four jhanas, but, I mean, to me, it's not saying don't develop right concentration. No. Different ways it's understood. So, I re- to sum up, I really do think the suttas, if you just take a pure sutta, don't take a Vasudhimaga overlay, think it's, if you're just looking at the suttas, uh, not how you choose to practice, but um, it's hard to separate out Satipatthana, four foundations from jhana. But that's my take on it. Robert, 
So I appreciated the way you just described that, Richard. And um, speaking of Pawak, <laughs> uh, he would agree with you on that, that without mindfulness, right concentration can't uh, really be developed or cultivated. When, when I was in his monastery, I would go and he would tell me this day after day after endless day. <laughs> it's all built on the back of mindfulness, Robert. Or sunyata. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And yeah. actually, I'm glad I'm glad you're here just to see you. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, as we talk about Vasudhimaga versus suttas, you know, I'm drawing this hard distinction for the sake of discussion. And I know in practice, like Vasudhimaga, we've already talked earlier this morning that, you know, Pawak he would say, well, no, the, the Vasudhimaga is telling you what's in the suttas. So you have to. So he's not saying the Vasudhimaga is a different path than sutta path. Of course, I, I'm saying it is. But uh, it, you, you please bring in any of his perspective because you're qualified probably here as much as any. I don't know if other people here have practiced with him or not. So um, that would be helpful. Yes, please. So, uh, actually, the third uh, noble truth tells about uh, nirvana is the end goal we are trying to achieve. So the jhanas gives enlightenment, and after enlightenment, we get nirvana. Nirvana enlightenment is about the world, how it is. We, we came to know the insight after the jhana, and once we know about the world, then we go to the no suffering stage that is nirvana. So this intermediate state is the enlightenment. Well, let me back up for a second from that. And then when you look in the suttas, the two common, when someone has attained enlightenment, say, there's a common standard stock phrase that's used, and there's two different ones that tend to be used. There might be some others, but these are the two that I know of over and over. One is it'll say, and I saw as it really is, this is suffering, this is its cause or origin, this is cessation, and this was the way leading to it. So they they have this, not as a concept, but an experiential realization, and and that, that was sort of the declaration of their enlightenment. Another very common place that when someone becomes enlightenment, it's, it's, they, they, it was through what's called the destruction of, there's a Pali word, the asavas. This is a word often described as the taints. It's some other, I won't go into other, there's a range of, of, of um, translations. But there's a list, and the taints are kind of like the fetters. There's three or four taints, and they are the forces that keep us caught in, you could say caught in suffering, if you will. Such, and, and we don't have to go through the list here, but uh, there's a list of three or four. And, um, and, and, and it's through the destruction of the suffering. So sometimes you, you see the Four Noble Truths and then the, destru- the, the taints have dropped away and then you've, you're done. So everything, I don't think you can be so systematic necessarily. Everything is just in service of, of liberating us from those, you could call them defilements sometimes is a word that's used, forces in our hearts and minds that keep us caught in the suffering. And when the taints drop away or the fetters, those forces tend to dissolve away. 
How you get there depends on the system in which you're practicing. So if you're practicing in the path of pure insight, the Sudhimaga path of the Vipassana, not the Samatha path, in that path, there's no jhana even as part of it. Right? So it depends on the system. If you're practicing in a... Uh, uh, samatha path of the Vasudhimaga or a particular interpretation of the Sutta path, then you have the, 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 the jhana in there. So I don't know if I totally understood you, but I think it was, you, I don't know if you can have these linear steps so much. Yeah? No, the enlightenment part, I thought it is like a kind of insight. I mean, we get the insight after uh, jhanas. So the insight part comes next to jhana. Then once we get the insight, then we go to the nirvana stage. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That's a, uh, that's a typical way that the path, you're exactly right, is laid out in, there's places in the suttas that work through it in a progression, just like you're talking about. Yes. And I could pull the suttas, there's one, Dikha Nikaya number two, for example, if you want that, or something. But... Uh, that's not the only way that one might hold it because, you know, see, there's other places in here, like in the Satipatthana Sutta. At the end of the Sutta, there's, you know, it's not saying, if you just take the Satipatthana by itself, which a lot of people do, and leave out the jhana, which a lot of people do, in that Sutta, at the end, it says, this is a complete path right here, because it even says, if you practice this, for seven years, forget that. Seven months, forget that. Seven, no, seven days. You're, you're in, you, you reach one or more of the stages of, of enlightenment. So it depends on, in the suttas, which model you're working in, in interpretation. But what you mentioned is one of the ways, yes. Yes, uh, I was teaching uh, different ways to different people, like um, lay people, he was teaching basic things. And... Uh, like advanced level, maybe seven factors is for advanced level people who can yeah. assimilate much better. I mean, that could be true. I mean, I, I don't know, but probably so. Probably so. I mean, we don't really know, you know, what, what was really happening and how much is carried through to today. You know. Although I will say, as practiced down, you know, this next sutta, which is called the uh, Anapanasati Sutta. Oh, wait, before we go on, so... I think it was clear that, I hope it's clear that um, uh, this is an important sutta and you can approach it in many different ways. And again, it's not a right or wrong. And so um, I hope that you'll, you'll see that there's a value in bringing in the samadhi influence here. But however you approach it, um, you know, it's tremendous value and benefit. Yeah? It's not just one way. You know, it'd be, it'd be nice if the Buddha, in his great wisdom, in his psychic powers, could see ahead that we're a little confused here. They could have been a little more explicit that say, yeah, no, I mean, you do jhana or you don't, and, you know, and <laughs> that would have helped, but, you know. Well, that's maybe so. <laughs> There's another interesting sutta we're going to look at called the Anapanasati Sutta. We're not going to... Um, just going to kind of touch on it because it's also very important. I don't have the whole sutta here, but basically it's an interesting sutta. It's also considered maybe equally as important to the Satipatthana sutta. 
Anapanasati, sati is mindfulness. Ana, the in-breathing, pana, out-breathing, mindfulness of breathing. And it basically takes the very first practice in satipatthana, which was, remember I said the body, and there was the first practice, which was breath. It's even more complex. They take that and break it down into four steps, but we didn't want to get into that. Here it takes those four steps and it adds 12. It's got 16 steps in the practice of breath meditation. And it starts off, you don't, have, don't worry about the details, but it starts off with when you're breathing in a long breath, in and out, you just know. So you're just connected with your breathing. If the breath's short, in and out, you're connected with it. And then you use the breath... Um, uh, experiencing the whole body. So through the breath awareness, you open up the experience of the whole body. And then the fourth is you use the breath tranquilizing your whole body. So, so. And then you can get more concentrated, more settled. And then it goes on and you actually get into some of these states that are the same qualities they talk about in jhana. The PT is there. Anyway, it goes on, you develop the samadhi, all the way to um, uh, deep places of insight that it talks about, and dispassion. It's a whole progression. I mentioned that, we don't have time to, I just want you to have heard this about the sutta. Um, so, you know, it would be a whole day just on that one sutta. But I just want to say that sutta also, there's a range of ways in which it's understood some people see it really purely kind of on, as an insight pr- interpretation in how you practice. And uh, it's not such an emphasis on the samadhi side. It doesn't really tell you in there that you have to practice jhana. Other people, such as me, see it more as a samadhi practice. Of course, as I say, I don't separate out the insight. With, to me, samadhi means it's an insight practice. And really, a lot of the words in there, there's the tranquility and the samadhi and the PT are all in there. I see it more as, as that. Some people practice that sutta as a um, working consciously step by step. You start with step one, then you move to step two, and you move through the steps. Others, which is more the way I practice, you start with mindfulness of breathing, and, and it just, the steps just open up. It's more descriptive of what happens just by being mindful of your breathing. So again, uh, just because of time, I'm just mentioning it. It's an important sutta. And the main thing to know is in relationship to samadhi, it's just open to different interpretations, different styles of practice. So it's real important and it's just not clear what the Buddha meant. Well, it's clear to a lot of people. Those proponents of samadhi say, well, of course it's clear. It's a samadhi. There it is. And then the proponents of pure insight are saying, no, it's an insight practice. I don't see any jhana in there. So So I didn't want to say more about that than just to mention Anapanasati. Any other thoughts or... I'm glad it's not the Sunnis versus the Shiites. Yeah. I mean, um, Buddhists may call each other names, but we don't blow each other up. <laughs> but it, it, listen, what, it's true that we don't blow each other up or that we can call each other names? 
and i feel the mindfulness is uh, for uh, reflecting whether we are in the right path like uh, when we are driving we see both mirrors to adjust our path so the mindfulness gives um, what are the hindrances and everything we see that and we try to remove that and that is a reflective path i feel yeah yeah and again if you keep in mind that if we translate the term samadhi go back to the root meaning of the term like the etymology of the term that it really means undistracted then you know when you take samadhi all the way to jhana you can think of just taking your the 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 quality of the mind that's undistracted deeply and an undistracted mind is just of tremendous benefit in any of its manifestations whether it's a fixed concentration that we talked about earlier that's one pointed and exclusive or whether it's a unification mind that's an open inclusive it's all of tremendous benefit when our mind is undistracted no buddhist teachers say be distracted even they might be a wide range of disagreements about you know how much concentration you need but they all agree let's not be distracted All right. We're going to take a break in just a few minutes, but I want to go back to one thing that I left out earlier when we were talking about jhana. And remember we went through a lot of different ways. We looked at what the Vasudhimagga says in the texts. We looked at what Sutta said in the text. We talked about some different interpretations. And remember one of the things we said like even take the term piti that remember it's 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 very clearly defined in the vasudhimagga but in the suttas it doesn't doesn't tell you what pt is i don't think i i don't know of any place in the suttas that actually says well here's what i mean and here's how it feels and then in fact it's highly individual how it manifests right and so similarly for all of these jhanas there's a lot of disagreements i'm going to offer you my own personal this is getting out of the text here before we take the break this is my own personal definition of jhana no matter which style you're practicing and again it's just me i've never heard anybody say this before but just offer it up because the way that pt manifests is so individual and undistractedness can go right it can go in a vasudhimagga direction and go in an open more sutta directions it's, it's a big range but i call any state jhana if it's got these three characteristics the first one is um the ekagata which is the unification mind or the one, of mind or the one pointedness or the singleness of mind and the way i define that is again i'm using this term the mind so it's kind of i i i'm i'm being sloppy in language since i don't know what the mind is and it's complex but there's an experience of having your mind come to where it's unmoving unmoving So you know if you any of you have meditated much you know that as you get more concentrated your mind wanders less it's becoming more still more still wanders less it's really settled but it can still have some you can be very very concentrated but it can still have some little bit come up start to wander a little once you go into jhana boom, I mean I don't know if it feels like a bump when it happens but it's like water can get 
you know, you can have water and you can have ice and you can also have really cold, slushy, icy water. As things are freezing and it gets to more slush, that's thicker than water. It's not ice. There's no mistaking ice for slush. And it's a striking, dramatic, striking state when the ekagata is, and when you drop into the unification of mind, the, the one-pointedness, when that unmoving of the mind, and the mind cannot move then. It's just, and it's not like, and if you're sitting there saying, well, am I in John and John? No. It's like you're in the ice now. Again, there can be other activities because if you're in First John, you've got this Vitaka Vichara, that's a mental activity. If you're connecting and sustaining, that is a, actually is an activity. If the other understandings we talked about for, for Vitaka Vichara in there, that's a mental activity. But there's that part of the mind that's... Your mind can never wander, could not wander wouldn't even have the inclination, the impulse to wander when you're in there. Anyway, I could go on and on trying to describe it, but there's a state, I'll just call it the ekagata. Ice. It's not cold, but I'm just, words, I'm just not articulate enough. I, I apologize. Number two, it's happening on its own. You do not do anything to sustain the state. So it's, these two are together. It's unbroken, mindful clarity and presence of of an unmovable mind. And it's completely self-sustaining. It's doing you. That's different than what I mentioned earlier that how you move through the jhanas depends on the person. For some people on its own then the progression happens and for others there is another very subtle but a part of the mind where you can incline the mind towards, remember, letting go of grosser levels or inclining towards, it's subtle. So that part, it's hard to talk about but it is there. But the main part striking is this um, unmoving and it's just self-sustaining. And the third part is the, the clarity of mind. You could call it the clear comprehension. The mindfulness and the clear comprehension go on a whole nother level. Remember I said earlier, I, I, I thought of, you could think of jhana as turning your mind either into a Hubble telescope or the flip side is an electron microscope. Either image can work. Sometimes it can feel like one or the other. It's that level of clarity, a whole other, you know, like orders of magnitude different that is striking when you pop into jhana. If you're close to jhana, it's pretty clear, but when you go to jhana, and sometimes you can see like just the, the germ of a thought that wants to arise. It's not your mind, it just wants to arise up. It's not even broken consciousness, and then it drops away. Or this is on the sutta side of Vasudhimaka, wouldn't talk like that, but... So I say that whenever those three are together, are there, unmoving, self-sustaining, super-magnified clarity of mindful and clear comprehension, I call that jhana. And then along with that, the highly individual parts are how is, how is 
um, PT manifesting. Remember, there's some people it's dramatic. For some people it's smooth. Some people are getting these lights and nematodes. Some people it's in the body. You know, all, it's very individual about all that stuff. That's why I said earlier also that I think one of the problems is if we start to judge how we're doing by PT. We're, it's, it, we're setting ourselves up for, for, for some, some suffering but because it's highly individual how the PT is. And also, it misses the point. The qualities that I just mentioned are really the qualities that are going to serve you, that steadiness, undistractedness, and clarity of mind in service of insight and in service of liberation. It doesn't matter what your PT is. If, if, even the definition of fourth jhana, clear, bright mind. Really perceive things on subtler levels. So that's my take. So we'll just take a minute or two and then we're going to have a break. Um, any thoughts about that? Comments? Agree? Disagree? See, the good thing about that, this is that, I'm trying to be a little humorous, but you can say anything because it's so, really, if you go back to the actual, remember, if you went back to the jhana definitions and those words there, what do we really mean by piti and sukha and vitaka and vichara and even ekagata? Right? It can manifest in so many ways that there's a huge range of what we can legitimately call jhana. And nobody can say anybody's right or wrong. I mean, they do say it, but I mean, we shouldn't. Could you say, <clears throat> could you say a little bit more about how um, that's experienced in the body? Actually, I, uh, how, what's it, what, those three things? I think that's also uh, highly individual because uh, for some people... Well, it depends. So if you're in a Vasudhi Maga style jhana, the body's gone. Uh-huh. There is no experience. It's a purely mental kind of thing. Uh, in, again, I'm, make, I'm calling this other thing sutta style. Sure, when, sure. Uh, in that style, well, when you're really like in a fourth jhana, now it does say like the pure bright mind, there's no part of your whole body not suffused by a pure bright mind if you look at the simile. However... I want to be careful because it's, it's, it's kind of individual. Some people kind of aren't noticing the body much. Sure. And they're just into the, the, the quality of mind is what's filling your mm-hmm. awareness. For other people, the body might be there, but it can be very thin and subtle, uh, maybe just like more of a vibration level, a light. And it, it's, it can be very subtle. Uh, it's hard for me to... I, I can't say no. one thing. You know, I, I appreciate that. Because... When I experience PT in the body, sometimes it feels cascading, like a, almost like a tsunami. That's so, one of the ways it's talked about in the Vasudhi Maga, right there. Your classic, mm-hmm. there you go, right there. So, <clears throat> so that doesn't necessarily give me a, a, it gives me a sense of, of like rapture, but it doesn't give me a sense of um, really like unmovable stability that you're describing. So if that's true, and our different teachers might say a different thing, even if that's very strong, uh-huh. I would, just from the little you've said, I wouldn't personally call that John. I'd say you're d- deeply concentrated. Mm-hmm. And then, then the whole question was, how would you work to take that? Nimita, that's your nimitta. Remember the Vasudhi Maga says it can be a light. And by the way, you can have to tell me later why, Vasudhi, why Pawak 
is on the light part because even in that same passage, it says it can be in the body too. You'll have to explain that to me later because uh, I've always wondered the question. I'm not criticizing him. I actually am curious. Sure. But um, uh, I would say, you know, maybe you suffuse that in the body like the jhana simile and let it take you into the jhana. It's a way of going into the nimitta. I don't know. We'd have to... You know. So are you sort of... Are you saying that the body actually... You use the body, but the body disappears? Sort of? Well, it depends where you're like in first jhana. Uh -huh. Yeah, there's, I don't know anybody who said there's a sense of the body has disappeared. In matter of fact, that sense of PT suffused through your whole body. That's the classic definition. Mm -hmm. um, when it gets subtler, you know, that's a place, you know, other teachers might be more familiar to talk about it more. I, I, I feel a little, you know, it's just so individual for people. Sure. I can talk about myself. Yeah. Um, uh, the sense of the body, not much. Mm. Uh, whether it's totally disappeared, I'd have to hang out and really see. Yeah. I don't think I can make a categorical statement. Yeah, no, I'm not expecting it. Anyway, thank you. Okay. Yeah, great, thanks. All right. So when we come back from our break, what I'd like to look at is, uh, is three questions. We already have kind of answered. Number one, what is Jonathan now? How is it that the Vasudhimaga can say that there's no experience of the body when in the suttas it's explicit that there's something in the body? So what, what are they, how do they talk? What is it? So we want to kind of bring those two together now and see how they're both kind of reconcile that. So what's the nature of jhana? Number two, what do the texts tell us about is the path of insight and the path of concentration, are they one path or two separate paths? You already know the answer depends on your interpretation, but we want to but we want to look at the text and really see what does it tell us there. What's the Vasudhimaga say, and what does the Sutta say? And the third thing we'll look at is um, is jhana, according to the texts, necessary for full enlightenment or not? What do they actually say? And we're going to actually look at what the texts say, and that will be after we come back from a break. That will be our afternoon. Okay, so why don't we take 15 minutes, it's 3.05, we'll come back at 3.20.